Welcome to the Tokyo Citadel Builders Podcast. This show is hosted by three Christian Bitcoin maximalists in Tokyo. We agree on very little except that Bitcoin is money and a tool we can use to help us build a better future. We discuss current topics in Japan and Bitcoin and how our lives are impacted by the growing Bitcoinization of the world. We interview builders on Bitcoin to learn about how Bitcoin can help us push back against government encroachment, enable us to retain financial sovereignty, and empower us to secure ourselves against corporate and government surveillance. Sat by sat, we are building a Bitcoin economy in Tokyo and connecting ourselves to citadels throughout the world. This show is hosted by We Three Gentlemen, Doomer Dash, Meta Mike, and me, Andy. We are a value for value podcast, so if you've enjoyed the show, hit us up with a thousand sat boost on Fountain or show us some love on our TokyoCitadel.com website. Connect with us on Twitter and Noster at Tokyo Citadel. All right, looks like we are live. Gentlemen, let's get this thing going. Spend 20 minutes screwing around with this stupid thing, you and your beloved Zencaster here. Hopefully it works this time. So, here we are, we're talking. Doomer Dash, Mike, me, let's rock and roll. As always, talking Bitcoin and Japan with no intro. Let's kick it off. Dash. What's going on in Japan? Guys, thank you. Uh, Andy, thank you for that introduction. Um, so I we are going to be doing a Japan-focused show today. So I don't want to um, do um, have too long a segment with the Japan segment, but there were three things um, that came up in the last couple of weeks I thought we could maybe discuss that were quite interesting. Um, so the first thing, it's actually news that's made the global media so you know most of the listeners i think are going to be aware of this but uh the japanese made a decision actually made it six years ago apparently to um to take a lot of the uh the, the water that had been used to cool down the fukushima uh reactor after the the, the meltdown incident um and that had been stored to date on site in huge tankers um, at, at the site of the reactors, the the government made the decision that they were going to have to dump that water into the into the ocean, in order to clean clean those tankers away and, and to proceed with the work to sort of finalise decommissioning that um, that site. And so, you know, uh, it's uh, it's been quite interesting because six years of planning have culminated into the decision today. And this decision, the final decision was actually made right up until the, the morning of today as to whether they were going to do this or not. Um, and they went ahead and they have begun dumping uh, this water into the into the ocean. So um, there's a few things um, to be, be aware of. And so, you know, it sounds very alarming, right? It's like Japan's dumping nuclear waste into the ocean. Um, it does seem that they have done... Uh, a fair amount of due diligence on this and so I'm, I'm taking all this from the you know obviously the mainstream media and so you know not sure how much it can be trusted but um i mean it, it kind of it kind of checks out um from from my perspective in that um apparently a lot of the water you can actually filter out the contaminants um you know prior to them sending it out into the sea there's only one contaminant which remains which you can't actually 
get rid of, which is uh, tritium. So that's what we remember, because this is in the news, we all have to become nuclear science experts this week. So remember tritium. Um, and this this apparently, according to my research, which is, you know, 10 minutes on YouTube. So, um, you know, may, may, may or may not be, be good uh, information, but this is naturally occurring anyway in the atmosphere. Um, and there are certain guidelines set by WHO, for example, on what's a quote unquote safe amount of tritium to have in water um and the japanese apparently set certain standards which are actually more strict than the who um and what they're doing with this water is they're actually they have this elaborate process where they dilute it um it's something like one to one thousand two hundred parts um of the kind of wastewater with then you know regular ocean water they dilute it before sending it out through a pipe um deep into the ocean this pipe actually goes along the ocean floor and then they send it out into the ocean and, and they monitor the area for any irregularities. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's the plan. This is going to go on for a number of years. Obviously, it's going to take uh, uh, some time to, to, to process the water in such a careful way um, to avoid any kind of env- environmental catastrophe. Um, I, I wanna, one thing I thought was interesting as well about this is the reaction from the international community. And so you can see, sort of see who's friends and who isn't right now by that. And so the Koreans, for example, the South Koreans, of course, uh, came out and said, you know, from their point of view, it, it looked fine. The science sort of made sense, and they, they were very uh, supportive of Japan. I haven't heard anything from the Biden administration, so I assume they're sort of tacitly approving of all of this. Um, on the other hand, the Chinese weren't weren't best happy, and, and they've been making noises about Japan being irresponsible and, uh, and and contaminating the environment. So it's kind of a, a good window into the sort of ge- geopolitical um, situation, especially when it comes to alliances and, and friendships and what have you. Um, so yeah, that's that was the, uh, the the news item number one. It's it's certainly one to watch, and I'm not sure, gentlemen. Do you think you'll be uh, you? Is Fukushima fish on the uh, on the menu for this evening for your evening meals, or are you gonna are you gonna? Um, well, this one, I mean, this there? one, yeah, this one isn't as big a deal. I don't think. I mean, because they were all freaking out when Fukushima happened. We were all gonna die, uh, even you know, day after, three days after. But I remember a. Uh, 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 a friend of mine who who uh, does nuke stuff, he says, trust me, if this was a problem, I wouldn't be here, you know. So, you know, the I think a lot of the uh, the nuclear stuff is, is somewhat overblown, you know, that's been funded by various people to scare out, you know, green tech guys funding against it, gas guys funding against it. Everybody, you know, doesn't want to have to compete against nuclear. So finding any way to scare everyone away from it. Uh, I certainly don't want to be blown up by it, but in terms of uh, a lot of the the environmental impact stuff and poisoning the fish, Simpsons three-eyed fish kind of thing, I'm a little bit less little bit less concerned of, at least personally. How about you, Mike? Any concerns from you? Um, not really. I mean, I I remember hearing <clears throat> about this, like the discussions that they were having a few years ago, and I had hadn't heard anything since until you just mentioned it today. But it's interesting that they finally went through with it. But the the comment that you made about China, <clears throat> they're dumping it on the east side, right? Like the opposite side of China. Yeah. I again, I I'm not sure how much of that has to do with logic or science, and it's I think it's more to do with right. you know, it's like a it's like a playground spat, right? Where yeah, it's yeah. funny. It's funny to see Korea and Japan as best pals now. I don't know if you've been following that narrative in the media. Like it's a, there's a love affair between uh, Kishida and 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 whoever the the PM over there is, um, which has been blossoming for the last year or so now. 
Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> I don't. I, yeah, I don't really have any other comments on this. Uh, I, I, I'm not afraid of the sushi. I'll still eat the sushi. <laughs> All right, you heard it. You heard it here first. The sushi has the uh, the mic seal of approval. So please um, enjoy sushi when out in Japan. Um, so, okay. For the second item, I thought this was also maybe a little bit interesting to discuss. And we discussed like immigration in Japan on prior shows. Um, we, we'd mentioned that the population is declining at a rate of something like 800,000 per year. So it's like a, it's like a mid-sized town being wiped off, off the map every year, um, of Japanese who are this, that's more Japanese that are dying than being born. Um, Japan has, you know, I've seen it anecdotally labor, labor shortage. There's places you go and the services is terrible. I've even seen signs up saying the place is closed because they can't get staff. Um, and so there's, there's certainly a problem now. The you know there's a number of steps being taken by the government to address this and to invite um, immigrants to come and work in Japan. Um, and I thought one thing is kind of interesting, worth following is um, may- maybe maybe this is somewhat of a you know propaganda exercise, what, what, whatever you want to call it, where the uh, you know the establishment is trying to train the native population to be accepting of this trend. And what, what, what I've noticed this in the sports in Japan for um, a couple of years now. And what one of the places where it's most visible is in the Japanese rugby team. And, and, and an interesting thing about international rugby is that you don't actually, and I'm fully sure about the details, but you don't actually have to even be a full citizen of a country never mind having been born and raised there, in order to represent that country internationally in rugby. And so it's interesting because the, the Japanese rugby team has uh, 16 players in it who are um, uh, who are at least born overseas. Some of them have naturalized to Japanese, but not all of them have. But in the media, they're being held up as a, as a sort of shining example. Um, I don't know if you guys remember when we had the Rugby World Cup here, and there was a lot of talk about one team. One team was the sort of tagline where, you know, you had obviously a, a mixture of uh, ethnicities within the team, but that was, you know, one to, we're all, we're all going to get behind them, if, uh, you know, uh, as, as, as the Japan national team. Um, I've noticed also that the, 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 there's some new language which i hadn't seen before which is uh uh which is essentially like a japanese literal translation of diversity is our strength you know or does it i guess literally would be diversity becomes a strength or something like that um but it's the kind of thing we've 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 we grew up with in the west and it's now you know it's kind of been being brought into japan I, th- I thought that was quite interesting we also saw an example in the tennis where uh if you remember naomi osaka she's a japanese american uh national but she was born and raised in america um and she she has japanese citizenship through her i think mother i believe her mother um and she actually chose to represent japan um internationally in, in tennis so uh, again she I, I noticed there was a a push by the media to sort of you know embrace her um she she's kind of faded recently um she had some issues i think you know with mental health and whatever what have you and she wasn't so successful maybe in, on, on on the tennis court which kind of hampered that the um, uh, those activities or, or, or that ambition but i think that it's clear that the, the japanese um see the sports as a way to um help normalize and, and, and get acceptance from the population in terms of what's to come um and i'm not making any judgment on on whether that's good or bad i 
personally happen to think that, you know, Japan could do with a little bit more diversity, to be honest. But we all know that there are also, um, you know, challenges that come with that. Um, and, um, you know, also it's it's going to be interesting to see the kind of immigrants that do co- do actually come to Japan, um, considering the sort of global c- competition for talent and, you know, considering the relative low wages that Japan offers um, when, when you look at the weak yen and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, that's something I noticed, uh, something we, sh- we should definitely be keeping an eye on going forward. But I wonder, gentlemen, do you have any comments or thoughts when it comes to that? Um, the use of sports to promote diversity and, you know, immigration. It's always great. Always works out well. Everybody always loves it. You know, there's nothing that uh, a society needs more than more basketball players. So this will, this will be, uh, this will be fantastic for everybody involved. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hadn't tracked the whole sports thing. I don't follow sports at all, really like in any country. Um, but I guess what you're saying here base, uh, doesn't surprise me too much. I think there is a um, general trend in this direction of increasing immigration. I mean, you bring up the the, the question of where are the immigrants going to come from? Like, where do you think they will come? They will come from over the next, like, say, ten years if they if Japan gets really big waves. Well, they have been coming from Southeast Asia, like Vietnam's been, a uh, large number of Vietnamese have been coming over. Um, you'd have to think, demographically speaking, that Africa would have to be, yeah, I think there's going to be something like 3 billion Africans, right? And uh, people projecting the population is going to grow to 3 billion in the next uh, couple of decades. So, you, you know, you'd have to think that would also be a pool of labor. Um, but outside of that, I'm, I'm not too sure. I mean, I, but I know the competition is going to be fierce because all all the, I mean, even, even if you think about somewhere like China and maybe the China are a little bit behind Japan, but China also have this looming demographic issue. Right. And so if the choice is between, you know, sort of, you know, wild, wild inflation, labor shortages, decreasing tax base versus having to swallow your national pride or your ethnic pride and, opening up the doors to more, um, you know, you know, let's face it, cheap, cheap labor. I think even the Chinese at some point are going to, are going to start shifting in that direction. I think, I think they'll have to. And so once you're competing with China, you're competing with the Middle East, you're competing with the West, Europe. I don't know. I, 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 I think Japan is actually going to struggle to get immigrants in the numbers that it, that it, that it's going to need. Yeah, I guess it's like a bleak picture of for the future, if that's true. <clears throat> I mean, the last thing we would want to see here is just like indiscriminate, anti- uh, sorry, immigration policies, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing to bring in, quote, quote skilled labor indiscriminately either. I think, uh, like, I mean, as much as I'm, I'm guessing you guys, you guys have been here a while. Like, do you hate, what's your opinion of the uh, the weebs? The Weebs are a terrible group, but they're pretty. Uh, they're you know the Weebs don't do anything for the most part wrong. You know what I mean? Like a Weeb's a Weeb, and you know they 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 populate various uh, uh, made cafes and hang out <laughs> in Akihabara and Ikebukuro and awkwardly try and talk to local women in crappy Japanese. But at the end of the day, that's really not too offensive so the weebs are probably a net positive they you know they get 
you know, there it's a, you know, the English teacher, English teacher thing is a uh, social, you know, basically welfare for foreigners, but you know, they usually dump the money back into the system. Very few take, uh, take any yen out of the system. So it, it kind of circulates through. So all in all, I'd say the weebs are less, less obnoxious. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm never happy to see, see weebs on the street, but you can't get rid of them. So uh, if I had to deal with a, a group of foreigners, the weebs are are good. They can be ignored and they can be left to their own devices. Yeah, I was gonna say, like in a in a sense, they're kind of like a model immigrant because they don't try to change anything. They're in fact, they're trying to assimilate. <laughs> Absolutely, and, uh, they want to keep it exactly as it as it as it is in their memory that they don't have in their imagination that didn't actually exist. So, uh, yeah, they're they're pretty benign. I think they're pretty harmless. I, th- I think from from recollection, from memory, gr- growing up in England, it was the kind of immigrant that sort of held you up at gunpoint and stole your wallet, which was more the problem than people who were over- overly enthusiastic about, you know, uh, English English culture and tea and scones and whatever. So um, that's more the thing I'll be looking for. I mean, I, I did notice there was a story a little while ago um, of some uh, apparently a, a Vietnamese crime gang who were stealing um clothes from uniqlo and then selling those back into vietnam or, or exporting those to vietnam or some, something like that so i expect i mean you guys have probably noticed that japan you know it's kind of um it's fairly easy going place you can walk into a place like uniqlo i'm sure you could steal a lot of clothes without people noticing and just walk out the store um and you know there's a so there's a certain type of person that looks at that and thinks, oh, what a nice society. I'd, I'd really like to settle here and contribute and keep it as it is. And there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's another sort of segment of the person who would just think of that as a as, as a giant honeypot, right? Or a giant um, an opportunity to just come and plunder. So my, I mean, my concern is that that, that kind of, um, you know, sort of criminal element may may increase. So we'll have to see. Um. But yeah, so let, let, let's finish off the Japan segment, uh, the Japan news segment, I suppose, with just just a little bit. I thought this was interesting. So I was looking into the gas prices in, in Japan and the government has been running some kind of subsidies for a little while now. Apparently those expire at the end of September. And so that's been keeping a lid somewhat on on gas prices. Now, one thing that I thought was quite interesting is gas prices in Japan aren't actually that high. I mean, perhaps partly because of the government actions. But if you look, um, they are at a 15-year high, right? So the 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 price at the pump you're currently paying is 181 yen per liter. Um, there's a, there's about a quarter of a liter in a um, uh, sorry. Uh, a liter is a quarter of a gallon, something like that, based on on, on my research. And so, um, essentially, Japan gas prices are, are in line with kind of California. So you're paying about five bucks based on current exchange rate um, per gallon uh, for gas in, in in Japan. Which, you know, I mean, Canada is that. Sorry, California is the highest in the in the U.S. But if you compare it to the U.K., for example, the U.K. is something like fifty percent higher even than that. Right. So Japan isn't like uh, that expensive when compared to Europe for for gas prices, which which I thought was quite kind of interesting. I didn't really I didn't realize that um, to date. However, um, obviously, there is um, is perhaps a reason behind this. I'm not sure how much the UK government is interfering with, you know, free markets and what have you. 
Um, they're probably doing it too, but whether they're doing it to the same extent as the Japanese, I don't know. As we know, um, or as, you know, as people should know, that the best cure for high prices is high prices, right? If if gas is high, people need to feel that, and then they'll stop using as much gas, and that will, you know, then and you'll have some kind of settling of supply and demand. Also, you know, the the higher prices incentivize more uh, producers of gas to come and supply that to the market. Um, but the government, for whatever reason, politically, it's untenable to let that happen. And so there is talk about Kishida and the ruling LDP to actually extend this these uh, price controls going actually uh, beyond September, so into October as well. They're also talking ominously about not just doing this for gas, but doing this for other items as well. So it looks like we're at the beginning of the government kind of masking price increases through price manipulation, price controls. Um, I mean, and again, if you speak to anyone in sort of Venezuela or Argentina or these kind of places that have experienced hyperinflation, I mean, these are always the, the first things that happen, right? Um, the, you know, right now, okay, it's subsidies and the Japanese government's kind of paying um, pro- producers, right, to, to help l- keep the price low. Um, at some point, of course, we're going to see uh, price caps on things and then we'll see um, companies not able to profitably meet market demand and then there'll be things like shortages and things like that that'll merge you know how close we are to that i don't know but i'm I'm sure we're on the path to it um but yeah that's the situation um but gentlemen what what about in in, in your daily lives have you experienced um more expensive uh gas prices or derivative prices such as um your your, you know your home power prices and um you know what, what do you think about the government's attempts to to artificially lower those it's hard. I mean, I don't drive, so you know, I, it, that that hasn't picked, uh, impacted. You know, in, in Tokyo, you usually don't, need, or a lot of the time, you don't need a car, so that hasn't impacted me. Uh, they haven't raised, you know, they they haven't raised ga- uh, prices on trains or something, obviously, because that's not gas powered. This isn't 1904. Um, as it's also hard when it comes to power prices because it's balls hot so that always makes uh right you know uh uh you know price increase for um you know generating electricity for the the ac and keeping the thing cool um and if you have more than one room you got a couple of these things going that's an insulation problem that's nothing to do with oil uh or energy prices so I haven't seen it, you know, directly, haven't really felt it indirectly, also don't pay much attention, so it, it's kind of hard. The caps here, they've been able, you know, they've been, the Japanese have, have been pretty good at, at doing the, uh, at, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a shell game when it comes to, like, moving money around here, moving around there, keeping things so they don't bite the average Tokyoite. I don't know how people feel out in the nether regions of uh Kansai or other parts that are not central Tokyo. Like when you live in Tokyo, you don't really notice the impact of things because this is where all the money is. So you don't see it firsthand. Um, it might be biting old people in the ass more, you know, say in Nagoya or something. Um, it might be, you know, kicking people in the chops out in Chiba a little bit farther out. Um, but personally, you know, as a N of one, I can't say I see much. Yeah, me neither. I mean, I don't drive here, so uh, I wouldn't know really. Um, I, I 
I would guess that when we see prices rising, like in general at the grocery store or something, that is somehow connected at least a little bit to the price of gas, right? Like all that stuff needs to be transported by trucks and stuff. Um, but it's, it is interesting that I think it probably is cheaper here. Like gas in Tokyo probably is cheaper than gas in like Los Angeles or San Francisco. So, um, that's pretty interesting. Do you know where Japan gets its gas from? I, th- I thought it was mainly the Gulf, but I don't, I don't have the up-to-date statistics on that, but yeah, I believe, I believe that's it, but it's mainly the Gulf. They kill many whales for it. <laughs> <laughs> Pillaging Malaysians. Yeah, let's. I mean, we'll we'll just have to follow it. I just, you know, it's 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 only going to go in one direction. I just think we're going to have, uh, you know, the government has caused all all the problems with inflation. Um, The more the government does, the government, the more inflation we're going to get. Right, and they're they're going to try and they're going to try and fix it by doing exactly the wrong things, things that are just expedient to do politically in the moment, but economically make absolutely no sense. Dash has a hard um, on for incoming inflation. He wants it so bad. Give me the I inflation. The, the accelerationist <laughs> in me. Um, what are we at now in terms of? Uh, well, actually, you know, gas prices probably are going up significantly in yen, right? Because well, of no, the yen. Well, because they manipulated it, right? So it is at a fifteen-year high, um, but it's like a hundred. It's one hundred eighty-one yen per liter. So you know, you're you're only you're up to California levels. Which isn't that bad, right? Yeah, no, I mean in dollar prices it's like the same as the US, right? But um yeah. but in yen prices, it's probably gone way up just because of the yen against the dollar, right? I see what you mean. Yeah, I think you might be right. Although we hit a the peak for the yen to dollar was like or dollar to yen was one f- I'm looking right now, it was one forty seven or something back in the fall last year. Mm. And now we're pretty much right back to that. I think we're at 144, 145. 145 range. right now. Yeah. I mm. think you basically have to go. The last time it was at this range, it was like 1980s. Although the, it has like kind of peaked close to this before uh, in the past. But if you go all the way back, I'm looking at the chart to 1985, it was 250. So mm. it won't be unheard of if we go that that high. That would be insane. That would be absolutely insane. It would be. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to live through that. <laughs> I do. I want to see it firsthand. <laughs> Give it to me. Mike and I get dollars, so bring on the pain. Yeah, I think we would be at an. We would probably be right around the all-time high for the Bitcoin price if that happened, right? <laughs> Assuming Bitcoin in, stays in stays set, uh, stagnant against the dollar, like the yen Bitcoin. Yeah, I'd be more worried about the pitchforks. Um, and you know, riots in the streets. Well, you point. think? Do you think that would happen? I, I, th- I feel like order would be maintained here, right? Up to a point. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think you have to look at look at look at a longer timeline for Japanese history, and it's not it's not like it's always been this like peaceful utopia, right? And so I, I don't know. I mean, how much of the last you know the pre World War Two Pax Americana has been a an aberration versus what's in, in, innate within J- Japan? I, I'm not sure, but I. I think at two hundred, what is it? You say two fifty against or, the yeah, dollar. Or let's just say the yen got cut yeah. in half against the dollar over yeah. the next couple of years or something. Uh, I don't know. I, I, yeah, that's that's going to be scary. It already was a significant crash, right? Like going if you go back two years, what was it at? 
I think it was usually just around a hundred. It was like a hundred and just above a hundred, like like 110 for a long, long time. Right. It it was almost like you could divide by a hundred and pretty much be. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's already 50% up. uh, Like that's pretty significant, right? Just over the course of a a couple of years. And you'd have thought it'd be more significant than it is, but again, like these government price controls, I think what you said, Mike, is true in that most things are a sort of derivative of the gas price, but we're, but that's being kind of hidden right now. But how's it being hidden? It's essentially being hidden by, um, you know, more more debt, more printing of the yen, and so like, just long, medium to long term, that's just going to cause more. Yeah, and weakness and inflation, right? So it's like it, we may well be in in some kind of spiral mm. um, already. It, it may, you know, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll talk about citadels, right? You could uh, scoop up a a farm or something if the price just gets cut cut in half. There's already yeah, so will. much property that's uh that's like basically dirt cheap by by well, U.S. or European standards. Hold that thought, Mike, because that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Um, following the builders segment. So I'll, uh, which I'll, I'll uh, which is that. a good uh, which is a good intro for me. It'd be a uh, little bit of a shorter one today. Uh, found this interesting group uh, called Satoshi Systems out of Spain. Um, they are a group of passionate Bitcoin enthusiasts who have chosen to dedicate the rest of their lives to development and advancement of Bitcoin. Their journey began with a shared belief in the transformative power of a revolutionary d- digital currency, and since then they've made it their mission to inform, assist, support like-minded individuals in navigating the world of Bitcoin. And in this rapidly evolving landscape, they understand the importance of reliable information and guidance. Satoshi Systems was established as a trusted resource to provide valuable insights, tools, and support for Bitcoin. And their commitment is is unwavering to empower the individuals and businesses with knowledge and resources so they can thrive in the Bitcoin ecosystem. They were inspired by the creative power and potential of Bitcoin and constantly pushing the boundaries, seeking innovative solutions. At Satoshi Systems, they are dedicated to fostering an environment where ideas flourish and collaborations thrive. They have uh, something called the Spoondelix ATM, uh, a solution for seamless Bitcoin stacking in the uh, ATM world. They have something also called the Sat Stacker. Um, where they connect six exchanges, send data back and forth. So through their web integration, you can stack online. And then they have a, a mining SBAI's uh, ASIC Bitcoin miner, uh, which looks to unlock um, efficient Bitcoin mining. This group isn't a company exactly. It's not a citadel exactly. It's some kind of group initiative, uh, in a uh, group initiative, which I found is interesting. I'm glad to see the Spanish are out there putting in the hard work. Uh, keep, uh, keep, uh, keep the nose to the grindstone guys out at Satoshi systems in Madrid. You guys have any thoughts on this or should we just move on? No love for the Spanish. Come on, dash. They're fellow Europeans and you should have some love for them. I'm not European anymore, as you know. That's a good point. <laughs> He's a weeb that now. <laughs> He's a weeb <laughs> well, now. Yeah. Well, true, but yeah. Uh, Although I, no. I was in, I was in Madrid not too long ago. I, I, I really like Madrid. Um, yeah, it would have been cool to meet up with some, some fellow Bitcoiners, but probably won't be back there anytime soon. 
That's your loss. Well, if uh, if anybody, uh, everybody listening is going to Madrid, Satoshi System guys, you can find them at satosys.tech or get them on Twitter at Sat, uh, Sat, uh, satosystech. Um, seems like a good group. If you can see them, you should hit them up. That's it for the builders. We've done Japan segment. We've done builders segment. And we're moving back to Japan. This is Dash's turn. Dash, what are we talking about? Thanks, Andy. So um, I, well, I thought it would be good for us to talk about um, Japan as a citadel on today's episode. Um, and so we had in our, I think in our in our inaugural is that the word uh, in our first uh, series of podcasts we had discussed what what was a citadel and we debated that concept. And gone back and forth and what was interesting is that we had maybe slightly differing ideas on on the citadel concept and one theme of i guess tension or maybe disagreement i i identified between our our viewpoints was you know maybe maybe an idea that could be summarized as you know one one uh, way of thinking about it which was a citadel is, is somewhere where you kind of put your flag in the ground and you, you know, you kind of make a decision to commit to a place versus the idea that maybe I had more of a citadel, which was more based around the kind of sovereign individual thesis that, you know, the, the, the citadel itself was kind of a nebulous thing, or it could, it could be, you know, it could be something that was online, or it could be about, it could be sort of spread over several jurisdictions, it could be, um, it could be focused on the individual and the family unit rather than a, a particular ge- geo- uh, geography or or community. And so, but, but but what I maybe wanted to do today is 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 think more about the citadel as as a place, yeah, you know, as a physical place, as a location, as somewhere that you choose to to put your flag in the ground. And since the three of us are, uh, you know. Um, for whatever reason, have chosen to be in Japan. Um, I thought it would be good to talk about the, you know, Japan as that place, um, not only now but but going forward as well. And I thought this might be useful, especially to listeners who were in Japan, um, or even who were outside of Japan who were thinking maybe they'd like to come here. Um, that we could go through a number of topics. I've you know, sort of, or categories, I suppose, of, 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 um, discussion and just discuss the pros and cons in a very unfiltered way. Um, and we don't, we don't mean offense to anybody who's, you know, any of the listeners who are, uh, Japanese nationals, um, you know, all three of us obviously have a a lot of respect and love for Japan, but there are, of course, (laughs) <laughs> but there are of course uh you know the challenges not everything's perfect in japan and we will be hopefully i'm hoping to really just have a frank uh you know unfiltered um discussion uh, about those things um and so that's the that's the high level framing and i thought you know since uh mike brought up before the builder segment about the the cheap land in japan maybe we could we can start off there actually it's not it's not at the top of the, the topic list but i but i thought it was good that that mike brought that up um and so maybe for the first um part of this uh, mike i can hand it back to you and maybe you can develop that idea you uh, a little bit more or, or talk talk to us through what um, what kind of opportunities you you think there are in terms of cheap land in japan is this where mm. mike tells us all about how he's going to be a farmer and raise cattle and <laughs> Yeah, well, okay, this is something I've looked into a little bit. I mean, I, I can't say that I have experience like actually buying any property here. But um, 
I do want to at some point. Um, now, okay, land is a interesting thing because if you're in like Tokyo or something, if you buy a property in Tokyo, you're not going to have any land at all. Like if you get even if you get a standalone house, I think you'll maybe have a a parking spot and that's it. Like no yard, no garden, nothing. I think for most people. Um, and then even in the outskirts of the major cities, you're pretty much not going to have any land. If you do have a yard, it'll be like a little space that's just big enough for a garden for most people, I think. And like I live in a residential area on the outskirts and um, uh, most of these houses here, it's the the kind of yard that people have, except for maybe a few houses, they'd be like, the people with the the equivalent in in like America, it's like the guy with the McMansion on the corner or something. They have like a what would be considered an average size yard in the U.S. I think in the U.S. suburbs or something. Um, so, uh, in terms of land, I think if you really want a property that's big and has not like not just the house is big, but the plot of land itself, you have to kind of go far out. Um, like leave them i think you have to leave the metro area of any of the major cities when you say metro area what do you mean like uh what what you could get to by train i guess because i don't know how far have you guys gone as far out as like narita um from tokyo it's like pretty far out honestly from the city, but I think even there, it's really, you won't even have a proper American sized yard if you get a house well, that far out. So, well, I mean, the, the problem, or some, this is why I ask, because this is a, a definitional thing. Everything is, is located on the, or uh, uh, is centered on train stations, right? Especially in the, in the Tokyo area or mm -hmm. Tokyo, the, the general Kanto region. So you can go, for example, um let's see what is that flashing are we all right here all right we're fine uh you can go for example out to saitama on the train right and you'll run into what you're describing that you're gonna get it'll it'll not be a it won't be a downtown city but it, the price will still be high you'll still get a little plot of land if it's anywhere near the um anywhere near the train station train station however right what i don't think people realize is you could drive to saitama to chiba to kanagawa go 15 20 minutes from a station by foot maybe 25 and now we're actually you're actually getting into a little bit more available land people are so concerned because of, you know they're traveling in and out especially in in the tokyo and tokyo adjacent areas so concerned with getting into work that if you are willing to be a little bit outside the train station for a lot of these places you can actually get a, a plot of land which isn't too bad for Japan standards. Like, of course, it's not the U.S. You know, it's not Vermont where you're going to get 17 acres uh, for $45, you know. But if you're not so worried about the train station, you don't even necessarily need to go into the middle of nowhere to the ass end of Totori or whatever. You can stay somewhat near civilization and still get a decent place, at least in my, from what I can tell. So that's why I asked about what you mean by metro area. Yeah, I think the the when it comes to suburbs in Japan, it works differently than suburbs in America because like suburbs in America everyone drives. 
uh, everyone will have a car. Uh, and I think even if you're going to, to the city, you would usually even just take your car and park it near the train and then take the train in or, or, or just park it in the city too. Um, but here in the suburbs, people, uh, they would have cars because they have like a, a parking, a, a, a driveway at their house. But I don't think anyone drives to work in Tokyo, right? Even if they're coming from Saitama or Chiba or Kanagawa. Yeah, I've never heard of that. It's a privilege. I mean, if you do it, you tend to be, you know, you're an executive or something like that, right? right? Or you're you're a shacho, yeah. Right. So the the suburbs works a little bit differently here. And so it's like, it, it's actually more of like a mix between a suburb and a city, even when you're in the suburbs here. Because it's very walkable. Like, so for example, I'm I'm basically, I'm in the outskirts. I'm in, I'm in Chiba, technically. But I can, within like 15, 20 minutes, walk to the train station, walk to a mall, walk to a major park. And so it's like, uh, every, there's restaurants and shops and groceries. Everything's walking distance. But technically, it's a suburb. And it's, uh, I think it's a lot cheaper than Tokyo here. Yeah, absolutely. You've pioneered I, I, the 15-minute city. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> I, th- I think it's it's cheaper, but it's still convenient, right? From what from what you're saying, and so yeah, you know, you t- so you tend to get a you know, r- ranging all the way from within the Yamanote line, and that's the kind of gold standard, right? Um, for convenience, and and the affluent would typically live there, especially in Minatoku, is the best. That's kind of the the, the prime real estate. Um, but you wouldn't, yeah, you're not going to get much space, but it's going to be extremely convenient or, you know, all the way to, you know, the, the, uh, like a Chiba or a Saitama where it's going to be convenient. Like you're going to have a train station, you're going to have shops that you need, there'll be apartments, etc. And that's kind of where the, I guess, what you say, like lower middle class would typically go. Um, and then they've got like an hour or an hour and a half commute into the office every day. Yeah, depending um, on which side. Like, if, from from where I am, if you go to Western, like the west side of Tokyo, it, it can take kind of a long time. But if it's somewhere on the east side, then then it's a uh, sure. It's actually a pretty quick trip. Sure. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, to, to to Andy's point, if you're willing to go off the beaten track, which is so, you wouldn't be going in a kind of like a, what do they call them, like a bed town, right, or, or anything that a, a typical commuter would go in right so you 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 you, you know you, i mean you can buy in it like i've seen people on um on tv and they, they, like you can buy a, a mountain to, to get really extreme so a mountain is extremely inconvenient right there's no running water there's no train that goes to it um so you can buy a mountain for like i think it was like 30 40 50 thousand dollars or something this guy had bought a mountain for and in japan like camping. yeah <laughs> like yeah. an actual and mountain like a, <laughs> like a whole mountain, right? It's a whole mountain, but there's nothing. There's no Seven Eleven, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. There's nothing. There's literally just a mountain with bears and all sorts of scary things in it. So, well, yeah, that's that's um, the thing is there's like it's kind of just this major gap uh, where in the U.S. you have like a properly delineated rural area, like a country area with farms and large properties, large plots of land, and everything, and then there's like suburbs, which is properly in between the city and that, and then you have the city. But here it's kind of like you just jump from the crazy extreme of like no space, really like pretty expensive to um, like a completely empty, like desolate area. And I think it's just how the the, uh, demographics work in Japan, like everybody moved to the cities. 
I have to say as well, based on my travels, um, again, this might be a regional thing. So if you go up to Sapporo, like Hokkaido, uh, Fukuoka, uh, even Fukushima, these kind of places, you, you get something more closely resembling, I think, the American. It wouldn't maybe quite be quite as good, but, you, you know, so... Um, and, the, and and typically, also, the, what's interesting about some of those places is they're more oriented around the car. You know, that the whole de- dependence on the train thing and the subway is, is it's kind of a Tokyo thing, or Tokyo and, and Tokyo region, Kanto, right? Well, even if you go to one of the other major cities like Osaka or something, it's um, mo- yeah, it would work the same way, right? Osaka, yeah. I mean, Nagoya. I don't I haven't spent much time in Nagoya, but apparently that's more because Toyota's based there. It's the incentives have been that that's more of a car town, whereas mm-hmm. Osaka is similar to Tokyo in that it's a train and subway town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, have you guys heard the number? It's what is the total population of Japan? It's like 130 million or something. 120 million, I believe. And isn't it something like 30, it's like 30 something million is in the Tokyo, the greater Tokyo Tokyo metro area, which it it includes parts of Saitama, Chiba, and Kanagawa too, but it's Mm -hmm. like, uh, what is that, a a quarter, almost a third of the entire population. So that like, I guess that kind of puts into perspective, if you're looking at a property, and actually with that being the case, it's still surprisingly not that by American standards, property in tokyo is surprisingly cheap right Mm. like if um except for specific neighborhoods but like where in the city can you not not to mention like a capital major city um are you gonna get like a place where you can you can get rent for like 30 mon 20 20 30 mon right in a lot of neighborhoods in tokyo and uh, I don't think you can find that anywhere in the U.S., even even smaller cities. Twenty thirty man. I mean, you you could get a, a half decent place. Uh, for yeah, I was about to say, my, Mike is balling out here. Thirty <laughs> man for his and shit. Every like, what are what are you doing over there, baby? That's, no, I'm not paying thirty, but <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying, I, like you can I mean, find stuff. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna get a view of Rainbow Bridge for thirty man. Um, but I mean, thirty man in the U.S., people would be like, "Wow, that's so cheap." Like in in the really? suburbs, you can't even find it. A place that cheap, maybe maybe in the suburbs you could find something like that cost that much. Yeah, that's insane. So to put that in dollar terms, that's what that's like. Uh, what's the current sixteen dollars, two thousand bucks, something like that. Yeah. Wow. So even even in even in like third tier American cities, people are paying that much. Like what? Or is it or absolutely? Is it, so I used whoa. to work in um, I used to work in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh like my coworkers would tell me they were renting studio apartments just like a little studio for themselves um and it was like $3500 a month which would be 50 something man wow i mean 50 50 man would get you a very nice place like you you're talking ex, sort of expat level um central minatoku decent what two 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 rooms and a bedroom and living room kitchen yeah yeah in, in like a pretty good area too yeah yeah i know a guy who lives um just in near the next to the russian embassy just just by the american club and he's paying about that i think for for an american-sized apartment um 
yeah so that's 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 interesting so it's obviously it's very cheap um even though you're not getting the same obviously like build quality is an issue i hear a lot from especially americans um i think the the standard of housing is probably a little higher in the states in terms of things like insulation um and what have you and, and may, maybe in japan you have to slum it a little bit even though it is a lot cheaper what any you do you agree with that or what's what's been your experience mike andy uh, oh i was gonna say i was gonna say the exact opposite of that actually <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm sure there are like high quality builders in the u.s but i think those will generally cost more because i mean I, i've looked at some of the newer construction things here and i don't think you would have any kind of serious problems or like fundamental problems with a new construction property that you buy in Japan. And I think the newer ones do have good insulation, but like a lot of those old houses that were built like a hundred years ago or something, um, or even 50 years ago, they have a, a lot poorer insulation. But like, if you go to some, some of these like cheaper cookie cutter, sketchy home builders in the U S like depending on your region, like you can really run into some problems where it's like, I, I've heard some horror stories, like within a couple years you already have like it's a new construction house that you bought and then within a couple of years you have like major problems with uh the electric stuff and the plumbing and like mm. you're it, it was basically all just like um pasted on furnishings and nice looking things on the exterior and underneath the underneath the hood it was all a mess basically and i, I don't think you would run into that problem i don't i don't think they really cut corners in japan in general well, don't go that far. There's been there there have been there have been reports before where that, I mean, like this is not a, I mean, Japan Japan has its benefits, but it's not without its sins. You know what I mean? Fair enough. Yeah, I guess just like on average, though, I would say that the quality of labor in general. Yeah, that, that, is... yeah, that I wouldn't disagree. With. It might take eighteen times long, but yeah. Yeah. So, well, okay. So on, but on, on the topic of property, then I think this is a good discussion to dig into a little bit deeper because one of the things I've heard from like the U S especially in like the Bitcoin community is people talk about getting out of the city. And we've seen, especially since COVID a migration from people who maybe were based in New York or Los Angeles, and they've gone out into, for example, Nashville to Austin, Texas, which I know is a city, but, um, and another, and others who've gone a little bit more extreme, they've actually gone into the countryside. There's things like is it homesteading seems to be a bit of a trend now, and people are looking to you know get get a plot of land, um, get some kind of energy independence in terms of have a land land with a with a stream on it that you can use to power, um, you know, generate power, etc. So there seems to be that trend in the U.S. And I wondered, you know, if we if we were going to superimpose that on Japan, and if we, and especially thinking about us as non uh you know native japanese who are living here um what what are your thoughts on countryside versus city um in terms of like you know whether that's even feasible for a non-native japanese and whether that interests you or you know to maybe get get some farmland or something like that or whether that's even needed to the same extent that it is in the states because we touched upon this a little bit earlier in, in terms of you know what would happen if there was a massive currency dip devaluation event but you know maybe we wouldn't see the same chaos and problems in japanese cities that, that we'd expect to see in in the american cities but what are your what are your thoughts on those things so yeah my position on this has changed a little bit i think um 
and we uh, uh, we we didn't talk about prices too much, but in Japan, when you go farther out, like when you're no longer in a, a metro area that would be practical for people who work in the cities to live in, then properties very quickly become very cheap, and um, especially because of the fact that the like the aging population is dying out, and you just have all these vacant houses. I think there's like entire ghost neighborhoods, so houses that are move, like essentially move in ready not like not new or anything fancy but you I, I i think you can find certainly tons of houses under six figures like under a hundred thousand dollars um and then most of like a ton of them are even under like 50 even under thirty thousand dollars and they're not just like pieces of crap that are gonna fall apart next t- tomorrow um and then i think when you go farther into the country you can for pretty cheap you can you can get like a kominka which actually has a plot of land and everything and it'll be an old structure so it's like pretty probably pretty harsh in the winter uh or the summer you have to put up with the extreme temperatures but um i think like there's a lot of livable places that are again like relatively cheap maybe you can find something for like twenty thousand bucks and uh it's not like the, the kind of piece of crap house that you would find for Twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars in the U.S., where it's literally like termite infested and um, totally unlivable. Just completely, just needs to be destroyed, torn down, and rebuilt. Um, so, uh, I I was always interested in getting a place. I used to kind of just only want that because I wanted more space. But now I'm kind of mixed because I think you you bring up a good point about the cities and like some kind of hypothetical future situation of chaos or something a lot of people view that as the reason for why they'd want to like preemptively move out to the country and i don't necessarily have that as my reason in japan i think i'd like i want a place that's kind of out in the country more just for being there like having the space and being out in the nature but not as like as it's a necessity because the cities are collapsing or something like that whereas in the u.s it's kind of a disaster already like um in major cities in the u.s you don't even have to wait for some kind of future chaos event there's like crazy stuff happening day to day you walk down the street and uh crime tons of crime filth trash drugs right um mass homelessness and just all kinds of social problems whenever political um like whenever there's heated political stuff going on you can be subject to riots and all kinds of crazy stuff going on in the streets and violence summer of love right right so it's like in in america you have to worry if you're living in the city you have to worry about some crazy like antifa freak throwing a brick through your window or something but that's just not a problem here and um maybe it could become some kind of a problem in the future uh but I, I think people who, if you live in an American city and you've never been over here, it's like you're going to feel like you're in a civilized place for the first time in decades if you're that old. I, like American cities are just such a mess. Like you can find civilized neighborhoods. Um, but is there one American city where you can just walk through the entire city <laughs> uh, and feel comfortable the whole time? 
Mike, half the fun of being an American is wondering, will I die today? Will I be stabbed in the face? That is America's strength, and I don't know why you're denigrating our great country. Because (laughs) it teaches you survival. You have to learn to be a Viking. It makes you strong. That's the problem with Japan. It's only weak people because they go outside, and at no point do they think to themselves, maybe somebody will rape me. And that's what makes America great. Yeah, well, it's it's certainly good training in in one sense. Uh, well, so you were you know you you said a lot there, and then about the construction and and the outer things like that. Now, one of the and this is the part of the Citadel thing. There is you go out to some of these towns, and you have to. I mean, this is part of the, the thing. You have to be built for survival out there because there's literally you know you got seven old people who will die, you know, within a decade. So if you're going to go and set up camp out there, you have to be willing to deal with some isolation, especially as a foreigner, because, you know, you're not going to have any kind of familial, uh, relational, cultural connections to this to this group out there. So maybe they're they're perfectly friendly, but you're, you're out on your own. You've got this thing of a house which you know they you know when they're selling it for fourteen dollars it might still be standing but it's not it's you know it's legitimately not in great shape there's a lot of stuff you got to do to it. you got to clean it out it's full of god knows what animals and whatnot so you have to be handy enough to put this thing together not only that you know you're not moving on to kentucky farmland or something this is stony rice field at best marsh you know, part of the reason why Japan doesn't produce any, a lot of their own stuff is because you can't, right? Like, you to make it do anything, you have to put a lot of work into it. So, the number of skills that you need to take one of these things out in the middle of nowhere and make it a little a livable estate for yourself is, you know, that that's a high barrier to entry. Like, you're not moving from, you know, some, you know, you're not moving from Westchester, New York, to this place, and been like, well, I watched a YouTube video, so now I'm good to go. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of effort that that there's a lot of background knowledge and a lot of effort that's going to be uh, involved. And not only that, once even as even if you can physically get the place up to speed, are you able to emotionally, psychologically survive out there? You know, it's not exact. You know, it's not entirely jeremiah johnson where you're living on a mountain by yourself but damn if it don't feel that way sometimes you know what i mean you can end up like that uh, that scene in apocalypse now right was <laughs> was his name um mind sheen have you seen that scene when he's emerging from the swamp you know absolutely the <laughs> so, um, like, that, that's the thing i mean like you yeah. i mean say if you have the money right you could just say you didn't want to do the farming thing you could get this house and you could pay you know you buy the house for 57 cents and then you spend you know x thousands of dollars to to fix the thing up but then you still got to live in this friggin place that's that's the issue that i'm seeing so unless you have some way to get 50 100 people to help you repopulate this thing the difficulty is is now you live in the middle of nowhere by yourself for what reason i I think that's the point though andy right if um 
yeah, I agree with you that it's just that if you moving out by yourself into the Japanese country, that is a that is a fa- one way ticket to going insane. But if you were to do this with a group of like minded people, um, and maybe that they had family, like you all had families, right? Um, and then uh, that that could be something that was feasible, right? And I and I also as you were describing the challenges almost what came to mind was this kind of image of the american pilgrims or whatever like the you know like the the settlers of the of the i mean obviously it wasn't easy for them but um but they 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 made they made a sort of go of it right and i'm almost thinking like with the depopulation in japan and there is actually a lot of fer- fertile land in japan like people like if you if you go up to hokkaido for example and you fly over there you'll see so many it's just really good looking farmland and it's kind of a it's kind of a best best kept secret japan does have a lot of kind of natural blessings and obviously with the rainfall here um it's it's kind of very it's it's a lot more um i think fertile than people than than they let on um i think hokkaido is actually one of the uh the better regions for farmland right I, I I think I believe so. Yeah, I know that we get a lot um, of milk from Hokkaido. I don't know why it all comes from yeah. Hokkaido, but it's it's good. Yeah, they have a lot of the dairy farms up there. So there, there I mean, there is a. There, so it seems like there is an opportunity. I completely agree with you, Andy. That it's it's not something that you could do by yourself. But if you were to get like, and if you look at like, it isn't exactly a one-on-one comparison, but if you look at Niseiko, which is this town up in Hokkaido, where the, as, as far as I know, I've never actually been there, but the Australians have kind of colonized. There's a bunch of guys from Australia who, um, it's this, this is a town that's really good for skiing. And these guys would come up to Japan in the winter and they, I guess they'd ski up here in the Northern hemisphere winter. And, and they like the place so much. And for, for reasons that we've been discussing, like the land being cheap and what have you, they bought up a lot of the houses and they've turned that place now into this thriving tourist destination. And apparently you go, you go up there and you hardly even hear any Japanese. It's, it's, it's very, it's very much Westernized and, and things like the ha- the houses are kind of Western style. And um, there's a lot of like really good restaurants and things like that up there. So potentially like something like that, where you, uh, I mean, in their case, it was skiing, obviously. But if you could rally around some kind of particular interest, maybe common interest or what what have you, um, it, it could be possible to, you know, for want of a better word, sort of colonize a, a little corner of Japan um, with with culturally like minded people. But um, what, what do you what do you think, Andy? Would that would that be a feasible way to sort of conquer the the Japanese countryside? So, I mean, in <sighs> theoretically yeah right like you go out but you know you mentioned the the pilgrims right you know that they came with a group of x hundred right you we live in a society now where you have so you you have to convince people to go with you and by convince people i don't mean you know you and two other families that that that's almost as you as non-sustainable as going by yourself so you gotta have a crew like a whole big team of you. You got to have, a, you know, 100 people, you know, 10 families, 20 families, whatever that would be. So now you're in cult territory. Like, how? where do you get these people that are going to do this? So it's, Tokyo, it's a, Tokyo Bitcoin Citadel. Telegram Tokyo Bitcoin yeah, right. Like, right. So, but I mean, like, seriously, I mean, that that is the difficulty is is coordinating this like if you're a pilgrim like you're 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 a group of people that are escaping uh you know religious persecution and you have this this idea to set up this whole thing that is a unique group of people that you have to cultivate 
and get from somewhere. And you have to have this shared shared understanding of the world, this shared, this shared plan, this whole thing that you're going to do together. Um, do do we live in a, a time and an age where we even have this group of people? Like, because the only people who are going to do this are, are Jonestown lunatics that are you know going to drink the Kool Aid, right? So where where is it that you find these people to do such a thing? Now your Niseko example has the um, the built-in resource of skiing, and they you know they they came in and they built on top of that. Is there something similar and unfortunately the Niseko thing is hard because a lot of them are in and out it's a, you know the, the Australians that are there they're for tour, uh, tourist season and they're gone I don't you know if you go in the summer the, I don't think a lot of them are there the town is kind of dead it's booming in December but come July it's pretty empty so you ha- and that that doesn't work for sustainable life for, for a group of people that wants to be out there so you have to find something else which includes getting you know, disreputables from some home country and getting them out there. Like they all got a plan. We're going to put this, this town, we're going to make this town. So you got to get a bunch of Philippines, you know, you're not going to get a bunch of Americans to go out and, you know, conquer the Japanese wilderness. Unfortunately, we're just too pampered for that. So you got to get a bunch of, you know, Filipinos or Thais or something like that. Somebody that, that has an incentive to do it. But what do you get them to rally around? Is that where you want to live? Do you want to go live in a little uh, Manila? I don't know. Um, so I think the conquering of the Japanese wilderness territory or recon, you know, <laughs> there was a town there once before. They all just all died. Um, so going to resettle and reinvigorate some town. I like the idea, but there's a couple hurdles there, I think. Oh, oh, for sure. But nothing. I mean, nothing worth doing is 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 ever easy, right? But I, but as as you're as you're saying that, I'm thinking. Well, you know what? Somebody's going to do it, right? Like, and and I think throughout history, you, you see, like, you just read in this textbook about this this population that that swept in and kind of repopulated a certain area, and it, you know, it's always just a paragraph in a history book, and you don't think much of it. But I. I guess we may be living through that kind of thing now in Japan, right? Where if you're losing 800,000 Japanese per year and and that's not going to get reversed in, in, in our lifetimes, I don't think there's no signs that it is. Then you create this incentive for, for like you were saying, and I think it was a good point where perhaps people in Thailand or the Philippines or wherever, wherever people with a little bit of get up and go who wanted to improve their situation could migrate en masse. And the incentives are certainly kind of there in terms of the, political incentives in japan to bring these people over here but for those people themselves to actually yeah i think the words you know populate or colonize or whatever you want to call it but 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 sort of capture their own corner of this country i feel like given the incentives we are going to see it so why why are we not involved in that process or should you know should we be involved in that process or or are we are we kind of doomed to be drowned out or, or you know by the the people who are more maybe tougher and more incentivized to do it. Like, like you say, like the Filipinos or whatever. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to think out loud, but it it seems like it is going to happen, you know, whether it's us or whether it's, it's, it's some other group. So the, the Citadel concept, you know, for the, for the Bitcoin freedom types is also challenging here because, you know, you have somewhat of a culture in the U.S. 
uh, and also some allowance for you. I mean, you can go and you can go and incorporate a town or a city. Um, you can get a population in there that that kind of makes its own rules. You know, there was that great um, documentary on Netflix about um, that that those retarded uh, hippie um, guys that brought in um, the you know whatever spiritual guy from India and they set up their little town in Oregon and freaked all the locals out. But you can do that in Japan. Um, I'm not entirely sure how that works. Like if you say you got a group of 250 people, you know, somehow, and they were all interested in doing this and you went and and you established a village or sought to establish a village. What, what reaction would you get from the local and perhaps even national government? You know, I suspect it's kind of already happening. Um, Niseko is one example; it's a fairly benign one. But there, there, apparently, there's there's whole areas of, you know, different different ethnicities, people who are kind of taking over through coming coming over here to work. I, I'll have to dig out some more specific examples for our next. I mean, I, 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 you have the examples of the Brazilians, right? You can go to Kanagawa, right. you can go to Atsugi, right. Uh, right. and see it. But they were they were brought here. I mean, they they had government go ahead ahead of time like they they had discussed this and they were going to come in so you would need to have somebody that had enough pull to be able to go in to a local government and say hey we're, we're gonna we have this plan we're gonna do this i don't know that i don't know how well you would be received if you didn't tell somebody you know what i mean you have to set this up ahead of time hey wait pause for a second what, what's the story with the brazilians in kanagawa Oh, there's just well, there's a bunch of factories there. So when you know, as all the, um, the, the, you know, as they were importing all these people to work in these factories and all kinds of stuff, and and the Japanese relationship with Brazil, uh, you know, sending uh, uh people back if you had what's it? Yeah, I think you just have to have, you know, one you know grandparent or something. It's a fairly light, um, restriction on who counts as a Japanese. Some 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 distant or some not even immediate family uh, relative. Uh, if you have some bloodline connection back, you were able to get not citizenship, but you were able to to to, to come back uh, as a resident and live and work in in Japan um, because of the Japanese relationship going back pre-war to Brazil as a, a semi-colony. So um, they, a lot of them came in. There were factories in uh, outside of Nagoya, you know, Toyota City, um, also in Kanagawa. Uh, town called Atsugi in that area uh, about you know an hour and a half outside of the outside of Tokyo a few of these little spots where they imported a bunch and now they have little towns a lot of, some of these towns are you know uh, so Brazilian that they, you know they speak only Portuguese some of the people don't even speak particularly good Japanese there because it's so uh, so detached from common Japanese society they have their own schools they have their own stuff gotcha gotcha so, well, this is a great case in point because I think, well, what what brought those people over? It was the factories, right? It was that they needed people to work in the factories, and they brought these people over. And I think we're going to see the same economic incentives di- working the same way to bring different other groups over, right? Because there's factories all over Japan that need workers, uh, convenience stores, uh, you know, health healthcare, nursing. There's so many, so many jobs 
that need to be filled. And the best way to, the most efficient way to do it, and Japan needs to solve this problem quick, is is to bring swaths of people over, right? So it's like like we're seeing this with Vietnamese right now, but um, you know, and it was Brazilians prior to that. But it's it's almost like a um, you know, it's um, if, if, if once you find a bunch of people and you can get them to come over and they kind of plug in and work, then the incentives are just to keep bringing them over and bringing them over. And once you bring those people over and they establish a foothold here, and as you say, Andy, they've got things like you know their own restaurants, their own language um, schools, things like that set up, then it becomes easier to bring even more of those groups of people over. So it, it becomes even sort of self fulfilling and and sustainable. And so I. And I feel like we we've seen that we saw that we've seen that in our own countries, right? And like, what is it unique about Japan that's that's where that's not going to happen? I I feel there's nothing unique about Japan that's going to stop that happening here, um, more and more in the in the in the future. I you know, so I think I think this 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 phenomenon is, is just something we're going to see more and more and more. Well, a lot that wasn't citadel building as such. That was just uh, immigration. Are we talking specific? <laughs> You know, because these are yeah, two, they're, they're connected, I, I but these are two different things. There, there's an intentional creation of a citadel, and there's just that natural emergence of one, right? And so, I, where, whereas, yeah, the intentionality wasn't maybe there, but what emerges looks pretty, pretty similar to a, a citadel for those for those groups of people. So, I, I do think it's worth looking at them as as examples. Yeah, I mean, um, so I'm not entirely. So I mean I get what you're saying, and you're not. I don't. I don't know that I entirely disagree. But right, am I going to call Koreatown in Queens a citadel? Am I going to call, um, you know, uh, uh, Germantown or back in the day Germantown in Philly, uh, whatever? Am I going to call you know Jackson Heights whatever in Queens something in the North Bronx whatever? Am I going to call these citadels? Well, not exactly. I mean they're ethnic enclaves. Um, citadel i think has a bit more intentionality and a bit more structure to it not not to be facetious i don't mean to be facetious but um you you brought up the koreans and i I don't think it was in the place you mentioned but for example there's that famous image of the rooftop koreans right in 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 america defending their oh in la yeah yeah base koreans right so so that i don't know was was that was uh, is that a citadel? Because because they have arms and they and they're willing to defend and die for the the their businesses and you know the land that they occupy. You will not take over my bodega. Uh, so I think that yeah, I mean you have a that that's a little bit of a something. Yeah, that they were protecting a location. They were coordinated, but it was as soon as it was. As soon as the riots were over, it dispersed. It didn't, you know, it it wasn't that that didn't continue. That didn't stand up. They didn't start an army, right? They didn't have. They didn't put up walls. It didn't become, you know, Chaz or whatever they had in uh, Seattle. So that's. I think it's on the right track, but it's still because it lacks the intentionality. It lacks the staying power, and it lacks the. the ability to coagulate and concretize. Hmm. I think I just, it just seems that you would need more intentionality. You need a dude or a group 
um, that stands at the forefront of this kind of thing, declaring it as such, like we are doing this thing. If you just let it be an, uh, an ethnic carve out, then it's just subject to the whims of the, of the larger population. So mm-hmm. to to um, going back to Dash's Niseko example, I mean, because that's based on this kind of tourist. Um, people are looking. It's got like this because of the natural geography. It has this thing that people want to want to get to anyway. So they congregated around the, the mountain for skiing. Have you guys been to um, Okinawa? It's the one place I haven't been to yet. I re- I really want to go though. Because there's actually the- nor have I so. Okay, because there's the main island, uh, which is like the big island, and that that's like really developed. But when you go off to, at least when we went, we went to a couple of the smaller islands that are nearby, and I was just like shocked by, um, first of all, how unpopulated I think like a lot of these small islands, and there's a bunch of them there. Um, they literally just have a population of like 50 people or something. Uh, but they have, it's absolutely beautiful. The beaches are so nice. The water's great, but it's just completely undeveloped. It's just like, there's the main port that you take your ferry into or whatever. And then uh, people drive over to the beach areas. And then maybe there's like a few shops and restaurants at, at the beach. And then there's like a little beach tourism business going on there. And uh, I think, like all the local people are supported by that. But I just, it made no sense to me that this is such a beautiful, like basically beautiful tropical beach area. And um, it's so undeveloped. And you would think there would be some like big money tourist industry business that would just set up a giant resort or something. But like, it just seems like these islands are completely untapped and it's part of Japan. So like there's, wealth in japan somewhere so it's like why don't japanese people want like tropical beach houses it doesn't make sense to me like do you guys know anything you ra- about that you you raise a good point and, and so you what you're saying is like we should essentially have a hawaii down there right? exactly exactly yeah it could be a way so better wonder, hawaii it could be a better hawaii i wonder if it has something to do with the fact that the powers that be and the, the large capital knows you know, even if they don't say it out loud, that essentially what is Okinawa? I mean, it's kind of a, the staging basis for a conflict, a future conflict with China, and right. And so, I, I wonder how much of that keeps the large investment away. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe 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 I'm just overthinking that. But uh, Andy, have you, have you got any ideas why that might be? No, I mean, because I I think that. I, I don't know that that's necessarily part of it because you can see any tourist quote unquote area in even in mainland Japan and it's nowhere near as developed as you would expect for being you know I was at uh, where was I I forget um, the I was at one of these towns that that I'd heard of before I, I had never been but I you know the name was famous and I went and we and I took the family there and we land and I get there and I'm like what is this abandoned shithole man like there is nothing here you have a you have the, the a, f- a few onsens where everybody I guess would stay inside, but there was nothing in it, like it was no town, there was no nothing, there was no amusement. I was just I was astounded by the lack of anything. You see that on beaches here. There's no boardwalks. There's no the very few places have uh, have much in the way of, of infrastructure for doing mass um, vacations. I just don't think the Japanese blow money on amusements to near the extent to support something like that. You know, you go to Jersey, 
you go to Florida, you know, you got all this kind of stuff that's set up for the mass, mass amount of people that are coming in. Japan, you just don't have it. You get, you got golden week and that's it. You're not doing, people aren't spending all, you know, all time of the month going down there and hanging out on the beaches. So I think, I think Okinawa just suffers from that as well. People just don't spend that much on this kind of thing. And I think this is going to flip because I think, you know, as, 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 as Mike's talking about it, I mean, that is a massive business opportunity for somebody. Andy, I think you're right. Probably the locals just don't have, you know, they're, they're, they're working all the time. And so they get the gear, they get like 10 days off a year and they mainly spend that time, you know, you know, over Christmas, for example, over the new year with their family. So there's, there's not that much discretionary income. There's not that much time for people to go out maybe and create that economy and, and incentivize the development of these places. But what we're seeing now with Japan's shift to a more tourism-focused economy, I feel like if you could like buy up some of the land in those places for cheap, and then you don't focus on the locals, you just focus on overseas visitors, and you and 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 you have people from Europe, from the states, from Asia, from China, etc., coming over, like you could make a killing. So yeah, I mean that's it's 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 an interesting point, but I, I expect we'd see we we'd probably see things changing in the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, and I don't know if um, when it comes to Okinawa, maybe like those islands, that that land might not just be cheap to scoop up because it is like beautiful tropical. <laughs> they are like beautiful tropical islands, so I, I don't know if you can just buy up a, a big plot of land there for cheap. But there are parts like Japan, like mainland Japan has so much natural beauty everywhere, right? Like there's nice natural, there are national parks all over, and I think. It, it, living within like areas that are within maybe 30 minutes driving to some of these major national parks, there must be large swaths of uh, land that are, that's just like really cheap, uh, like somewhat developed. So like, you don't have to worry about setting down new power lines and all that. But um, um, like, I, I feel like that, it, and, it, and it would have natural resources. So it's not like you're stranded on some kind of Island and you don't have like water or something. So I think what you're describing would work really well somewhere like um, like Shikoku, mm. for example, where there's just beautiful natural parks and it's just this massive land space that, but the population's tiny, right? Like there's only like a couple cities that people are congregated in, in Shikoku. And I, like, it's like no name cities that nobody knows about. Yeah, let's buy, let's buy the land before Bill Gates gets it all. <laughs> yeah, Turns and we also have to deal with... You have to deal with the local, you know, you have the local gods that will thwart you and your gaijin uh, blood from settling in, in the sacred holy land of the Japanese. Yes. Well, I, I and that's just, um, I just remembered a story I can share with you. I think it's going to be on our next episode because I think we're just, just about coming up to time here. But there's, um, there's a guy I know who's setting up a, a whiskey distillery in Hokkaido. And maybe I can, um, maybe I can talk a little bit about that on the next episode it was exactly as you were saying Andy he had to spend so much time courting the local politicians and what have you to get the necessary licenses he needed to, to do all the and permits to do to do what he wanted to do but um, we can maybe um, put pause here and, and uh, cover that in, in the next episode what yeah, I'm looking forward to it I, I'm okay, you know despite my uh, my my bearishness um, I am super pro uh, Citadel building here in Japan so let the let the let the listener understand. Andy is not against the idea, but yeah, you got to be realistic about it. Absolutely. All right, gentlemen, it was a good one. Looking forward to the next one. Do it again. Yeah, next time.
All, All right. right. Thanks, guys. Right. Thanks, guys. Later, yo. And we thank you for listening to us today. You can find us on Twitter and Noster at Tokyo Citadel. You can find us on our main site, tokyocitadel.com. And please check out our guests that, that you heard today. Support us on the Fountain app with a thousand sat boost. Or head on over to the site and hit us up with some love over there. Building sovereignty, privacy, and hope into the Tokyo Citadel. See you next time.